Welcome to another episode of the Magic of Possibilities podcast. Today, our host dives into chapter two of her book, Holy Sober, where she bears her soul about a personal journey of breaking away. Get ready for a gripping story that unfolds through the eyes of our protagonist. In this chapter, we're taken into the gritty reality of family life with scenes of violence and the lasting impact it leaves behind. Our protagonist wrestles with mixed emotions from her church where love is preached, but judgment and gossip linger in the pews. Growing up brings disillusionment with organized religion, fueled by the discovery of hypocrisy and the impossible standards set by the divine. As the story unfolds, we enter darker territory with revelations of early experiences of abuse. The protagonist courageously shares encounters with family members and their friends, leading to a profound disconnection from God. The struggle with damnation and guilt is real. Brace yourself as we explore the allure of substances like cocaine, and methamphetamine and the roller coaster relationships tied to addiction. Our protagonist grapples with the belief that she's too bad to be saved, culminating in a deep disconnection from God, spirit, and conscience. The chapter closes with a powerful choice to feed the hungriest wolf within her, embodying anger, fear, guilt, and self doubt. This narrative weaves together themes of abuse, addiction, religious heartbreak, and personal battles, offering a raw and honest glimpse into the complexity of the human experience. Stay tuned for a journey that is as heart-wrenching as it is inspiring, only here on the Magic of Possibilities podcast. Chapter two, disconnecting. There is an old Native American parable that says there is a battle between two wolves within each of us. One wolf is love, hope, grace, compassion, patience, peace, confidence. The other wolf is anger, doubt, fear, envy, guilt, jealousy, shame. They battle to be fed and dominate the soul. Which one will win? Depends on which one you feed. My Aunt Ruthie was my connection to God. She was a church-going, non-leg-shaving, dress-wearing, judgment-doling, mean old broad who had a laugh as jolly and a belly as big as Santa Claus. She was the matriarch of our family and ruled with a booming voice and heavy hand. And every Sunday morning and evening and Wednesday evenings, she joined her brothers and sisters for worship and service. Here she raised her voice and her hands to the heavens as she cried and sang, The Belrose Pentecostal Church of God was her church home and the closest thing I had to my own. 
I can still smell her cheap, obnoxious perfume and hear her sing. There will be peace in the valley. Every few years, she grew restless and abandoned the church and all her values. She'd smoke, curse, wear pants, watch R-rated movies, and tell dirty jokes. But eventually, she always returned home to Bell Rose. I'd like to say that going to church and not drinking cooled her anger and improved her behavior. It didn't. She was abusive by today's standards. Not just to her kids, but also she dominated, more like emasculated her husband. I remember a drunken scene with Aunt Ruthie. The kitchen was dimly lit by the light from the dining room. There was a whiskey bottle and terrible yelling. Uncle Wendy was holding his hand up to his head, covering his ear. There was blood oozing through his fingers. My cousins and I were hiding around the corner in the room next to the dining room, trying not to look, but trying to understand what was happening. And that's it. I want to say she broke the whiskey bottle over his head, but I'm not certain of that. I was no more than four or five years old. Though my mom could be aggressive in her drunken state, I remember watching Aunt Ruthie beat my mom down, giving her a large black eye that stayed put for weeks. Mom had shown up drunk and started attacking Aunt Ruthie's husband, Wendy. You're fucking worthless like the rest of them. Yeah, you sit there with that smirk. As mom took a swing at him, boom, down went mom. All of us kids were scared and started crying as we were running up the stairs to the bedrooms. Like my mom, Ruthie was also a fierce protector. She questioned mom and Bob when they dropped me off for the night with welts and bruises on my little legs. Mom kind of shushed her. I know, he got carried away. It won't happen again. Bob once found me taking the clothes off my life-sized doll and kissing her. He took the black cord that went from the coffee pot to the outlet and said, You are a bad girl. Don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever do that to your doll. He swung and swung again. The cord wrapped around my leg, and when he pulled it back, it would grab the welt already there. The pain was awful. This was not completely abnormal back in those days. Many of us would have been in foster care for the beatings we got. Aunt Ruthie wasn't much better, and she didn't reserve her spankings for just her children. If we stayed overnight without mom, we were susceptible. But if mom was there, it was rare she'd let Ruthie hit us. Tend to your own kids, I'll tend to mine. Mom was so much stronger than she thought. This little light of mine. I'm grateful for Aunt Ruthie because she was my connection to God, church, and Jesus. She brought us to church mostly for Sunday school. Easter, and Christmas Eve service. I liked the Bible stories in the Bible and loved the songs we'd sing. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, was one of my all-time favorites. Still is. I enjoyed getting away from home. The Sunday school teacher was a great storyteller and used a felt board with characters to act out the scenes. It was always great fun to play with the new kids and listen to them when the teacher would ask what we thought about each story. It felt safe and joyful in Sunday school. I believed I had a special friendship with Jesus. 
I kept that secret though. I just thought I knew him differently, or maybe it was he knew me differently than they knew me. Jesus knew my secrets. When I started understanding the adult messages, however, religion was lost to me. At the Sunday and Wednesday evenings, things got scary. The preacher stood up at the pulpit with that same booming voice my aunt used for intimidation, told us how vengeful, angry, and unforgiving God was. He'd yell so hard, sweat poured off of him. Instead of comfort and joy at church, the messages changed to lakes of fire, God's disappointment in me, and how I was a lowly sinner and would be judged, and how I could never measure up to God's expectations. As I grew older, I recognized hypocrisy far and wide in the church, like how Aunt Ruthie turned on again and off again. I'm Ruth the church lady. I'm Ruth the rebel. It was confusing. While the church people would say to love one another, they'd whisper and gossip about each other. Can you believe she would wear that to church? I heard she had an affair. She's living in sin with a man and not married. Love one another? But if someone didn't fit the ideal of their perfect churchgoer, they wouldn't love them. At least it didn't feel like love. I felt if I could never please God and I was doomed for damnation, what the hell was I doing then? I disconnected to find peace, or maybe it was to not feel the weight of my damned soul, believing I'd never be accepted by God. I simply stopped talking to or thinking about God. I acted as if there was no such thing. What nobody knew was I was already damned. My body had been sexually used most of my childhood from my earliest memory by a family member. Soon, it would be my brother's friends. They would sneak into my room and mess around with me while I was sleeping, touching my private parts and touching themselves. When I would wake up and realize they were fondling me, I was too afraid to say anything. Afraid of what? I'm not sure. Making them angry, embarrassing them, getting them in trouble, embarrassing myself, getting myself in trouble. So I would lie there pretending I was still asleep, hoping they would stop. It wasn't so many years since I'd gotten whipped with a coffee cord for undressing my doll. I didn't want another whipping. Why do they think they can touch me like that? Do they talk about it with each other? Why is this happening? There was one particular friend of my brother's. He was 17 and I was 12. I stuffed my tube top with toilet paper and put beans in the middle as makeshift nipples to attract his attention. He was a local equivalent to Scott Bayo. Don't laugh, he was hot back in the day. He wore real cut-off jeans that frayed on the ends, tank tops and long striped tube socks. His brown feathered hair fell over his light eyes. I would lay out in the sun in our front lawn and watch him and his friends skateboard the half pipe they built in this driveway. I loved him. I wanted to believe he loved me. I even broke up with a really sweet and cute boyfriend who I really liked for him. Serious stuff for a 12-year-old girl. 
He worked at a burger joint and smelled like he dipped himself in grease and he had bad acne. I remember always wanting to pop those big, gross whiteheads so I wouldn't have to look at them any longer. Couldn't he see them? But he was so hot and he was 17. He had the coolest hot rod, although it didn't run much. He liked me and I felt special. He would come over pretending to see my brother so my mom wouldn't freak out. Having been the young victim of a 17-year-old boy herself, she didn't want me repeating her mistake. One night, mom had a hangover and fell asleep early. We usually just snuck kisses and touched each other's private parts when she left the room. But since she was passed out, we snuck off into my room. I loved him and wanted to give him whatever he wanted. It felt good to have him want me so bad. He pulled down my underwear and crawled in between my legs. He put his thingy in. It hurt, but it didn't matter because I knew he was mine now. I knew he loved me. We heard mom coughing and thought she was waking up. He jumped off me and pulled up his pants. When I whispered, that was really good, huh? He said, it doesn't really count because we didn't go all the way. What did he mean it didn't count? I didn't finish. I didn't come. So it doesn't count, he whispered. My ruptured hymen told it differently whether he came or not. When boys messed around with me sexually before, I didn't think God would be mad at me. I didn't want it done to me, and I didn't like it. But now that I wanted a boy to have sex with me and let him have sex with me, even though he didn't come, I was damned. There was no returning from my sinful ways. Filled with sinful thoughts about boys, my body had become a weapon against my soul. I was going to hell. Damned if I do. My final connection with God and religion was pleasant. But it made me come to a harsh realization. When I was 12, my girlfriend Gina invited me to her Baptist church's summer camp. She was such a sweet girl, and her proper mother was quite a contrast to mine. Their simple apartment was quiet and serene. It was the summer Anne Marie song, You Needed Me, played on the radio. I'd sing along. She sang about how she sold her soul and he bought it back for her, how she needed him and he was there. Of course, I wouldn't know the real meaning of those words until nearly 30 years later. I want to say that camp stirred up the same hate, fear, and condemnation I felt at Aunt Ruthie's church. It didn't. It was one of the best memories of my childhood. The camp sat up in the mountains. We swam in the huge pool at least twice a day and sunbathed in the warm sun. We made graveyard drinks that were a mix of all the sodas. Each room held four girls and a counselor, and we'd laugh and tell stories until late at night. My counselor really liked me. She talked with me about how I was enjoying camp and said she liked my bathing suit. She made me feel like I mattered. Shannon was one of my cabin mates. She was cute, silly, and quick-witted. We became like best friends over that weekend, trying to out-tell stories to each other with exaggerated details. I felt like a kid. 
I was surrounded by these great girls and engaged in all the activities. In truth, I don't remember anything churchy about the camp, not a single sermon or prayer. What stood out to me, though, was my self-condemnation. I wasn't like these girls. I was damaged and broken, and if they knew the truth about me, they wouldn't have liked me. I could forget during the day when we were busy and doing things, but at night my secrets would haunt me. I knew the truth of who I was. And by the time we were ready to go home, I was resolved to quit pretending. I would never be a good girl. Rather than trying to become what I could never be, I disconnected from God and the good girls to be on my own. Gina and I were very different girls anyway. We just never talked again. I stopped thinking about God. I did the same thing I did with Gina. I walked away and never looked back. I was 12. Coincidentally, that same year, I experienced my first intentional drunk. Doug, the next door neighbor, would sit out on the front porch and talk with his kids. He eventually invited us to follow him into the house and get comfortable in his home. Then it became natural for me to just pop in and chat. Mom was so glad I had him to talk to because I didn't get along with my stepdad and I'd never met my real dad. What my mother didn't know was that Doug was plying me with Rainier beer while kissing and fondling me inappropriately. I liked how beer allowed me to disconnect from my feelings and while Doug was kind of old and gross, his touches and kisses weren't awful. Not like when I was a little girl. I hated being touched when I was little. For once, it felt good not to feel bad about being bad. My momentum picked up from there. In eighth grade, I drank as often as I could, smoked pot when I couldn't drink, and started smoking cigarettes and got really good at having sex. That year, I reconnected to the boy I loved since I was in kindergarten, Ricky. He had big brown eyes and long lashes, dark wavy hair, and a wide, sweet, mischievous smile I couldn't resist. His Cuban family didn't subscribe to traditional methods of parental supervision, so he was able to run amok. No curfew, no one following him around, like my mom did with me, no rules or discipline, which meant every time I skipped school or lied to my mom and didn't come home, I was with him. That's the only way I could be with him. My family were bigots and refused to accept or permit me to date a Cuban. My stepdad was the worst. Cubans are just one degree from being a fucking nigger. I know, it's awful. I didn't care what anyone thought. I was in love. During one of these unsupervised rendezvous, I had sex with my new love, and I got pregnant. I thought I just had a stomachache. I was so confused. I don't remember a conversation or making the decision to have an abortion, but my stepdad and mom drove me to the Kaiser Hospital on Greeley Avenue in 1980, and my brother's girlfriend's mom picked me and my mom up. I was so detached through the entire process. Dropped off, shown into a small room, told to put my feet up in the stirrups. On the way home, we stopped at Taco Bell. We never talked about it again. We never did but I heard whispers of the family reunion at Blue Lake Park that summer. Did you hear? Teresa found herself in trouble. Trouble was code for pregnant. Now everybody knew what I knew all along. If I hadn't already been certified as broken and condemned before, I most certainly was then.
Through my teen years, I drank with Ricky and his friends. I went to house parties and drank when he and I were broken up. Pretty typical, I'd say, for a teenager who was primed to party and had murdered her conscience. Pretty typical for a teenager who had disconnected from God and herself with no moral compass. Ricky's older brother changed during the years we were together. He used to go out to the bars a lot and keep several girlfriends, each thinking they were his main squeeze, but now he was skinny and hid in his house a lot. I found out he was using cocaine. This was a major big time. Ricky and his best friend Tom came over to my mom's house to pick me up. Let's go in your old room. Ricky looked wild-eyed and moved his head in that direction. He pulled out a tiny white envelope from his pocket. Tom had a small compact mirror and a razor blade in his hand. When I looked up and caught Tom's eyes, I knew something was up. His eyes were wide, and he didn't seem to be blinking. Ricky dumped some of the white powder on the mirror and divided it into three equally matched lines. He rolled the dollar bill and stuck it up one nostril, plugged the other, and snorted the powder right up. Ricky handed it to me. Oh, come on, babe. You'll love it. There's nothing like it. I took the dollar bill and snorted my first line of coke. I liked it. I liked it a lot. For the 16-year-old, nothing felt better than a few lines and a couple cans of hams. When I got pregnant again, not long after this, I quit using and drinking. But my Cuban love did not. He continued using and began freebasing cocaine during my pregnancy. I'm pretty sure it's called smoking crack these days. It's funny how memories from long ago still live within your body and can cause the same anxiety as they did so many years ago. Just thinking about this makes me feel anxious. Freebasing is what Ricky's brother was doing, and it changed him from a charismatic Cuban gigolo into a skinny, paranoid weirdo. I was scared. What was going to happen to my Ricky? The night and dark morning hours before my precious baby arrived, I'd been up begging his dad to stop using. What if he comes tomorrow? We have nothing, no diapers, no formula, nothing. Ricky relented just before dawn, and finally we went home. After the sun began to rise, and I had convinced him there was nobody on the roof, he fell asleep. I don't know if I'd even dozed off when I flung off the sheets to see that I had wet the bed. My water broke. Ricky rushed me to the hospital and slept in the waiting room while I was terrified and in tremendous pain, giving birth to our son, Cody. My maternal sobriety didn't last long. About two weeks after I brought my baby home, I joined his father in the chase of my life, freebasing. The want that directly followed each hit was maddening. After spending all the money we had, begged or borrowed, lips stuck to the glass pipe all hours of the dark, I'd lie there and beg the demon to stop calling me as I tried to sleep away the craving for more. Our son couldn't have been more than six to eight weeks old when I gave his dad an ultimatum. Stop the drugs from taking our son and leaving. I only used when he used, and if he didn't use, I wouldn't use. I don't know what motivated me more, that we didn't have money to pay our bills or that he was taking off to party with his friend. But he made his choice, and so did I. I took Cody and moved back to my mom and stepdad's. 
I was scared and uncertain how I was going to raise a child on my own, but I was more afraid of what would happen if I stayed. I'd watched Ricky's family members shrink in their lives, and as it turned out, I hadn't seen nothing yet. I never did crack cocaine again. That doesn't make me innocent, and I was no hero because it didn't take long for me to be smitten with a brand new infatuation. Crank. You know it as meth. Hello, lover. This was the greatest drug ever invented. I didn't have to spend as much money and could stay up for days. It would only take a dime, $10, to set me up for a full night and early morning spin. I could drink all night and not get drunk. I lost weight. It was a girl's dream diet. Living with my mom and stepdad meant I had a built-in babysitter. I would head out on Friday night and not return until Sunday. I wanted more of staying up all night and start hanging out at a friend's house playing cribbage for hours on end, smoking, snorting, and drinking. In the small shack that was unheated and falling apart, people came and went at all hours. One night, my friend's cousin Mark walked in. Tall, handsome, intense, and recently released from prison. He had a no-nonsense confidence that pulled me like a magnet. Mark and his whole family, as it turned out, were not only dealers, but they were manufacturers of crank. I graduated from the bad boy I was typically attracted to. This guy was dangerous. We had only been dating a few weeks when we pulled up to Mark's cousin's house and she met us outside. Teresa, your mom's trying to get a hold of you. Your little boy has a fever. I was high strung and hospitalized with random fits of vomiting and not eating being identified as stress related in my teen years. Being high on meth made it even worse. Cody had had spinal meningitis when he was two or three months old. I almost lost my little man then. Because of that, any fever would cause me great concern. That night at 10 months, he had a fever and couldn't keep his food down. Mom rode with us to the emergency room. I felt like I was coming unhinged, but I didn't tell anybody that. I lose my mind if anything happens to my Cody. After a careful examination, the doctor assured me it was nothing to worry about. They prescribed him some antibiotics and sent us home. On our drive back to mom's house, an emergency vehicle passed us, lights flashing and siren blaring. My body froze. My eyesight went blank. I felt needles pushing from the inside of my body out. I couldn't catch my breath. I could hear my mom as if a mile away frantic. What's wrong with her? Please, what's wrong with her? Mark, help her. It was my first massive panic attack. About a week later, we woke up to a bright and sunny June morning. I instinctively connected the panic attack to the crank and didn't want to trigger another one, so I was clean and had my bearings. Mark ordered me to make breakfast. When I said no, he pulled me by the back of my hair, bringing my face nose to nose with his. Get your ass in there and fix me something to eat, you little bitch, or I'll kick your fucking ass. Feeling secure. Thanks to my overprotective, fierce mother in the next room, I yanked my hair out of his hand. Get the fuck out, I yelled. He left. I never heard from Mark again. Unfortunately, it wasn't the end of my panic attacks. And it wasn't the end of my disconnection. When I was young and happily listening to Bible stories in Sunday school, I didn't realize that I was already damned to hell. 
By now, I'd connected the dots from my sins to God's anger and vengeance. I understood perfectly that I was alone. I disconnected from God, my spirit, and my conscience when I realized I was too bad to be saved and, like the women before me, chose to feed the hungriest wolf. One is evil. He is anger, fear, envy, guilt, shame, resentment, lies, self-doubt. As we bid farewell to the intimate revelations in this profoundly personal chapter of Holy Silver, we extend our heartfelt gratitude for your openness in grappling with these challenging narratives. From the intricate dance of faith's absence to the turbulent struggles within families and the seductive pull of addiction's darkness, we hope this journey resonated with the intricate tapestry of the human experience. Life unfolds in chapters, each burdened with its own battles, where the wolves within clash. Amidst these disconnects, we aspire to discover the resilience to face our own shadows, to embark on the journey of healing, and to forge connections that uplift rather than diminish. Your participation in this journey has been invaluable in the upcoming episode, we'll persist in navigating the unpredictable twists and turns on the path to sobriety. Until then, let us remain resilient, interconnected, and mindful that every individual story holds significance. Thank you for being an integral part of the Magic of Possibilities podcast. Your strength your connection, and your narrative all contribute to the profound tapestry of this exploration. Stay strong, stay connected, and always remember, your story matters.